0: Welcome to the Hillside Church Denver podcast, the home for content from Hillside Church in Denver, Colorado. Hillside exists to help people belong to Jesus people, believe in Jesus, and become like Jesus. And we hope that what you hear today does just that. Go to hillsidedenver.org for more information about this community of Jesus followers. And if you're in the Denver area, we would love to welcome you in one Sunday morning. But for now, onto the pod. Today, we start in chapter one, a good place to start, right? Um, I think when we think about the world that we live in, especially as we think about political engagement, as I was just talking about, um, I often think that a lot of the wickedness that we see in the world, a lot of the the bad things that we see in the world, um, really come down to foolish people gaining power. When... When, when fools get power, they do so much destruction. Or when foolish people empower wicked people, they do so much destruction. It's, it's not so much that wickedness in the world is perpetrated by deeply, deeply wicked and evil people. I think most of the time, most people think that they're doing the right thing when they do what they do. But when wicked people do get empowered, it's because foolish people have allowed them that or helped them to that place. Foolish power does so much damage. And that's what we're going to see through the book of Esther. We're going to see an empire run by one foolish man, one weak and foolish man, and the absolute devastating consequences that that has for the people of God. Now, as we enter the book of Esther, what you got to understand up front is that Esther is a comedy. If you're not laughing, you haven't really understood the book of Esther. It was meant to be a comedy. And, And in our Protestant, especially evangelical world, we take the Bible so seriously that we take it very seriously. And it can't have any humor in it. And the fact is that Esther is an uproariously funny book. If you understand the time and place and you understand what's going on, and it drops, it starts right at the very beginning in chapter one. It drops us into this festival that's been going on or will go on for six months. Here, the king of Persia, Ahasuerus, or Xerxes I, is throwing a banquet, throwing a party that's lasting for six months for the nobles. Now, this isn't for the common rabble, okay? You can't have the whole empire going on a six-month binge, And anything still function. But all the nobles and all the the officials of the kingdom, they get a six-month party that Ahasuerus is throwing for them. And in the beginning of this chapter, we see the one decision that Ahasuerus makes on his own through the entire book. Most of the book, Ahasuerus is relying on other people to make decisions. He's relying on these counselors, these foolish counselors, to make decisions for him. But here at the beginning of the book, we see the one decision that Ahasuerus actually makes for himself. And that is how much people get to drink. And it's a lot. Right, right here we see, we see we're dropped into this big festival that's going on. And it, we're told that everyone gets to drink according to the king's edict, which is like basically like whatever you want. Just, just drink it up, people. So they're going on a six-month bender. The nobility of the kingdom, the nobility of the empire. Um, and now the rabble, everybody else, you and me, we get seven days. The rest of the empire gets seven days to go on this bender, to have a crazy festival and just, just enjoy yourself to the utmost according to the king's decree. And that's the one decision he makes. Hey, everybody, you get to drink on me as much as you want. Right? Love me, right? Is this not an insecure man, right? This is, I'm going to get people to love me by telling them, hey, just go, go, get, go get wasted, okay? Go get wasted and forget all your troubles and forget what's going on in the world. This is my decree for you. Go drink. Now, in the middle of this festival, drunk King Ahasuerus is like, hey, you know what? My wife is really hot. Like, she's, she's dropped dead gorgeous. And he decides he's going to parade her out before his nobles so that they can all ogle her. Seems reasonable, right? This is what you do when you've been drunk for six months. You you say, hey, my hot wife should be seen by everybody. And so he tells, he doesn't go to her himself, right? He's, he's too high and lofty for that. He grabs seven of his eunuchs, seven of his, his court officials. These could be actual eunuchs. They could just be court officials. But he grabs seven of them and he says, hey, would you go get my wife and tell her to come to this party? Now, meanwhile, Ahasuerus' wife, Vashti, has been throwing her own party for the women in the court. So, so we're to understand that this, this kind of six-month party is really for the male officials. And so Vashti's like, I'm going to do something for the girls. So come and have a girls' night with me and hang out with me. So they're having their time. They're enjoying their time. When these seven men show up from the king and are like, yo, Vashti, you got to come because the king wants to show you off to all his officials because he thinks you're really hot. And Vashti's in, in a in, in the most sensible thing that happens in this chapter, Vashti says, um, no. No, I won't do that. Um, this, of course, makes the king angry, because any time you defy a foolish king, he's going to get angry. And so Ahasuerus gets really angry about this, and he says, what are we going to do? I don't know what to do about this, this disobedient, disrespectful wife of mine who won't come and let herself be ogled by all of my officials. I mean can you can you imagine the gall of this woman who just will not come at her husband's command to be looked upon by all the drunk men of the kingdom but that's the case and so Ahasuerus is like I don't I don't know what I'm going to do with her and so he goes to his officials who are learned in the law of Persia. This is happening in the capital city of Susa. Susa is one of four capitals of the Persian Empire at the time, which makes Ahasuerus the most powerful man in the world, at the, according to the people reading this. right, Everywhere outside of China, Ahasuerus is the most powerful person in the world. And so Ahasuerus goes to his counselors, he goes to his officials, and he says, hey guys, what am I going to do about Queen Vashti? He can't just let it go. I mean, that that would be ridiculous. He's got to do something in response to his disobedient wife. And so Ahasuerus goes to his counselors and he says, what are we going to do? And this one very wise counselor named Memucan says, you know, king, um, master, king, oh glorious one, if word of this gets out, then every woman in the whole empire is going to rebel against her husband. You've really got to come down hard on Vashti. And as you know, being the insecure, foolish man that he is, says, you know, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, I think you're right. If, if that Vashti, if word gets out that Vashti has defied me, what's going to stop every housewife from defying her husband's rule? And then anarchy is going to rule in the whole empire, everything's going to fall apart if the women stop doing what their husbands tell them to do because my rebellious wife wouldn't come when I told her to come. This is the comedy of Esther. This, I mean, this is just absolute ridiculousness. Everything in this book is going to be taken to the tenth degree in order to show just how wild and how foolish and how ridiculous the Persian Empire is. That's the whole point. The author here is trying to make you look at this and go, my gosh, all of the opulence, all the extravagance, all the foolishness that runs this empire is just amazing. And you're meant to look at it and compare the way this works to the way that God set up for his people to work. The way that God set up his nation to run. Based on wisdom, based on his instruction. So you're supposed to look at Hasuerus and the court of Persia and go, what in the world is happening? This is what happens when people get unchecked power to run whatever way they want and they're not constrained by any moral code or any law. There's no God telling them what to do because the emperor is, in essence, the god of the empire. And so, Hasuerus, listening to Memucan, his... Advisor who says, "Hey, all the women of the empire are going to rebel now that Vashti's rebelled. So you got to come down hard." Hazuar says, "Okay, so what do we do? How do we how do we make this happen?" And we learn at this point that any decree by the king cannot be revoked under any circumstances. So the king, when the king makes a law, that's it. That law can never change, never be revoked, never turned back. According to custom, according to this book. And so Memo says, okay, king, here's what I think you should do. I think you should issue an irrevocable decree that all the women of the empire must obey their husbands, and that'll solve it. Right? If, you just, if you just issue that decree, that's it. Done. Life is good. The empire is in good shape as long as the women obey their husbands. And this is just, it's, I mean, it's just so silly, right? Because this is what happens. When a foolish man has unchecked power, when a foolish man, (laughs) (laughs) this is what happens. You get ridiculous laws, ridiculous decrees that can't be revoked, and they think, man, this is really just going to make all the difference in the world. Meanwhile, all the housewives across the empire read this thing, and they're like, wait, what? Why? Why did I need this? Why did we need, honey, honey, do you feel like I'm rebellious? Because I I think we're doing all right. I think we're pretty good here, right? But this is the way Ahasuerus runs things. This is the way he does things. And this is what is so dangerous. Because what's being set up for us now in chapter 1 is the manipulation of the king that will happen later that will lead to another decree. The decree for the destruction of all of God's people. See, when you get a foolish man in power, he's easily manipulated, he's easily swayed, he's easily moved. And one official will take advantage of that in the coming chapters to make the king issue a decree that all of the Jewish people in the empire should be destroyed. That's what happens when foolishness gains power. That's what happens when a self-interested, self-involved man concerned primarily with opulence and extravagance and his own power gets it he's like a petulant child who's easily manipulated doesn't know what he's supposed to do and this is the danger of living under that kind of power and here here's the problem the bible thinks that we're all living under that power all the time the problem is that biblically speaking this is the way that all the nations of the world are portrayed Right? This is the way that human power and dominance are portrayed. This is why, one of the main reasons why, God has to call out a people for himself and give them a law and make them a kingdom so that they can stand in opposition to the kingdoms of the world and show the world what it's like to live under true wisdom and under the true wise power of someone who is captivated by God, who is, who is held accountable to God's standard and to God's wisdom. And so everywhere in the world, this is the situation. By portraying Persia this way, this is one of the Bible's ways of saying this is the way the world operates. Maybe not to this degree, right? This is a comic degree. This is ex- an exaggerated way beyond natural law and natural ways of running things. But in the end, we're all people living under the power of foolish kings, And it doesn't matter what party they come from or what policies they promote. In ourselves, apart from God's law, separated from the work of the Holy Spirit, separated from the work of Yahweh, our Creator God, we are living in a lack of wisdom. We are living in foolishness. The foolish man says in his heart, there is no God. And this is the situation. This is what we live in. And so it's, it's meant for us to look at this and go, wow, that Persian court is just absolutely nuts. I'm glad that God gave us a system, God gave us a structure, God gave us wisdom to live under. Now, if you know the history of Israel, you know that most of their kings were in the same boat as Ahasuerus. Most of their kings were equally foolish, manipulated and turned by every wind of the people, manipulated and turned by every wind of the nations around them. They were easily swayed into worship of false gods. They were easily swayed into marrying princesses from other kingdoms in order for political gain, when that would mean bringing other gods and idols into their nation. As you know, if you know anything about the history of the people of God, they too had lived under foolish kings. But all along the way, God had been promising the one king, all along the way and through their history, God had been promising it a, a day when a king would come to rule over his people who would truly rule in wisdom, who, unlike Solomon, wouldn't fail and marry wives from all of the foreign nations and set up temples to other gods in his con- nation, who, unlike David, wouldn't send men to the front line to die so that he could take their wife. One day there would be a king of Israel who would come, who truly would perfectly rule and reign in justice and in kindness and in self-sacrifice. Read Isaiah 53. There was a day coming when God would send a king totally different from Ahasuerus, totally different from Xerxes, one who would listen to his father and lead and reign in wisdom and truth and justice, and would, most importantly, lead and reign self-sacrificially. When we look at King Ahasuerus, we're meant to turn our eyes to the king God has given us, to the king God has promised, to the Messiah that God is sending for his people, who will bring restoration for his people. And thank God that 2,000 years ago, that man finally came. That in the grip of the Roman Empire as the people of God were under a different empire, as they were being reigned and ruled over by another unjust kingdom, Jesus Christ came into the world to be that promised king, to be the king that would be nothing like Ahasuerus here, to be the king whose character would be completely different, who wouldn't live in opulence and extravagance and luxury and seek his own power, who could not be manipulated by the forces of the world because he lived in absolutely perfect wisdom his entire life. The king who would come and not set up his reign by military power and by force and by riches, but would set up his reign by going to a cross and letting all the powers of the world exhaust themselves on his body. This is the character of our king. When we look at Ahasuerus, we ought to be moved to look instead at the character of the king God has sent. And so we're going to, we're going to look now at Philippians 2, and we're going to compare the character of Jesus on display there to the character of Ahasuerus we've read about in chapter 1. Philippians 2, 5-11. to Listen to this. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And here's his attitude. He existed in the form of God, but he didn't consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Isn't that exactly what every emperor in history has ever done? Trying to exploit equality with God when they didn't even have it? And yet Jesus comes in the form of God and doesn't exploit that. Instead, Jesus emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Jesus, who came and took up his throne, took it not through an extravagant coronation ceremony, but the Jesus' coronation ceremony was actually on Golgotha, the day that he was crucified. And that his ascension to the throne happened on the day that he was resurrected, and then the day that he ascended into heaven. Jesus took his throne through humility and death and servanthood. And what king has ever done that? What political ruler has ever done that? Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6-16. to 16. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction." For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is... We're here told by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, Look, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through greed and through the pursuit of opulence and extravagance that we are pulled away. And in the character of our King Jesus, we ought to be content with what goes on. And yet, here in Ahasuerus, we see nothing but the pursuit of power and of opulence and of extravagance and of money and of fame. And yet, our King is one who has humbled Himself and led us into contentment so that we can follow Him faithfully. Let's finally look at Colossians 2, 6-15. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in Him being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ, when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses." He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us, and he has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Jesus, our King, has come and not ruled over us with an iron fist and not not ruled over us in order to to build up his power and his wealth and his extravagance. He's come as a servant to us, to free us and to redeem us. And in doing so, we're told that he conquered the rulers and powers of the world. That in his humility and in his self-sacrifice, he actually conquered all the powers of the world that are represented by Ahasuerus. All those powers that were arrayed against his people, All those forces of the world that said, what you need to pursue is wealth and dominance and power and authority and self-aggrandizement, self-satisfaction, self, self, self. Jesus comes saying, no, 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 no. To love is to lay down yourself. And I'll show you what that means by going to a cross. Jesus is our king who in his humility proved more powerful than any emperor who has ever ruled in the world. Jesus in his humility proved more powerful than any king who ever built up his power with armies, who built up his name with wealth and opulence. Jesus is our humble king. And he's the one that we need. It's his kingdom that we have to join. It's his kingdom that we must be a part of if we are going to endure living under the reign of foolish rulers. If we're going to make our way in the world where foolish people in power cause so many problems, we need a rock-solid king. We need a rock-solid kingdom. We need an allegiance and a citizenship that supersedes and goes beyond any allegiance and super citizenship that we have in the world. And Jesus is that king. He's the only king who ever came and said, let me lay down my life for you. He's the only king who ever came and said, let me pay for your sin, your transgression. Jesus is not the king of law and order who holds us to the standard of the law and punishes us when we fall short. Jesus is the king of grace who comes and takes the law and order in his own body, takes the punishment for our sin, takes away our sin, disobedience so we can be united to him. And it's this king, it's this Jesus who laughs at the plans of the rulers of the world. Let's go to Psalm 37, 12 to 17. Listen to to how God is portrayed here. The wicked person schemes against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. The Lord laughs at him. That is, God scoffs at him because he sees that his day is coming the wicked have drawn the sword and strung the bow to bring down the poor and needy and to slaughter those whose way is upright their swords will enter their own hearts and their bows will be broken the little that the righteous person has is better than the abundance of many wicked people for the arms of the wicked will be broken but the lord supports the righteous and listen to psalm 19 or psalm 59 sorry Psalm 59, 6 to 10. They return at evening, snarling like dogs and prowling around the city. Look, they spew from their mouths sharp words from their lips. For who, they say, will hear? But you laugh at them, Lord. You ridicule all the nations. I will keep watch for you, my strength, because God is my stronghold. My faithful God will come to meet me. God will let me look down on my adversaries. Our God is one who looks at all the foolish plans of the world, looks at kings like Ahasuerus, and (laughs) scoffs. He says, you can make all your plans. You can do your worst, but my plans are greater. And in the end, all of your violence and all of your power will only work backwards in on itself. And you'll work to your own destruction. Our God looks at the foolishness of earthly rulers and laughs. And this is the God who came to us In Jesus Christ. This is the God who came to laugh at the plans of the earthly rulers. This is the God who on a cross spread arms wide and said to the powers of the world, Do your worst, exhaust yourself in me, and on the third day after his death rose again to prove his victory over their machinations. This is the God we have in Jesus Christ. And this is the God who one day will return to make all things right. This is the God in whom we can have a rock solid hope because we know that we know that one day he will come and all things will truly be made right in and through him. And so we look at 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 26. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. This is our king who will come back and make all people, will make all of his followers as he is. Raise them from the dead. Even death doesn't have power over this coming king. Even death can't reign over Jesus, who overcame it in his own resurrection and promises us the same resurrection that he experienced. And one day, he'll come back to make that reality. Revelation 21, 1-7. to Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, "'Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more.'" Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. In this episode, from the end of all things, when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom on earth once and for all, he makes the solemn promise to us that in that day, death and crying and pain and tears will be no more because he will have defeated them all once for all perfectly. This is the future that we get to look forward to. This is the hope that we have. This is the hope that drove Jesus' first apostles to their deaths because they knew that the worst that the world could do to them could not take away from them the life that Jesus gave. This is what drove Jesus' earliest followers to die for him because they recognized that all the foolish kings of the world couldn't touch what Jesus had given them and the promise that he had made to them. And today, for you and me, living in a world run by foolish people. Not a country, not a city, in a world run by foolish people where we see the evidence of foolish power on display day after day where we see nations crumble, where we see infrastructure toppled, where we see people making really horrible policy decisions that harm the poor and the weak and the broken among us. When we look out at the world as it is and we are tempted to despair, we are reminded of our coming King and the future that he has promised, not just for you and me, but for all those who are hurt and harmed and put down by the powers of the world for all those under the reign of people like Ahasuerus, for all those people under the reign of people like Kim Jong-il or Kim Il-sung, for all of those people who live in places in the world where they can't even make ends meet because of the foolish leaders that are over them, Jesus comes and promises, I am making all things new. And that day is coming when every tear will be wiped away. In the meantime... As Esther will be called to do, we as followers of Jesus, as members of God's community, are here to work toward that end. You see, that vision of the future, that vision that Jesus gives us of the perfectly, of his perfect rule and reign, when the powers will be defeated, when when tears will be wiped away, when death will be no more, that vision is not just meant to be some pipe dream that we hold on to to get us through today. It's supposed to be a motivation to work toward that end in the here and now to stand on behalf of and work for the justice for those who are broken, those who are poor, those who don't have, those who haven't been privileged in the ways that we've been privileged. It's meant to give us a solid, rock-solid hope to hold on to when things are hard and a motivation to love and care for and serve those who are struggling under the reins of the Xerxes of the world right now. This is the dual call of following Jesus. We hold on to a future hope and we bring that hope into our here and now and we work toward the good of our neighbors because that's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus didn't just come and live and preach a few good sermons and then die for our sins. Jesus came and lived and healed and fed hungry bellies and taught people and he loved people. And he gave us an example, not just of a future hope, but of a current mission. This is what Jesus has done for us. This is what our good and wise king does for us. He takes our sins. He gives us love. He embraces us and feeds us and then says, go and do likewise. Love as you have been loved. Feed as you have been fed. Care for as you have been cared for. And there's no place that that is better illustrated than at this table. When we come and we partake of the body and blood of Jesus, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, which secures for us forgiveness of sins, which binds us together into one body as God's people, which reminds us of our current and coming King, who is making all things new and is starting with us.